0: you know these things. You know this to be true. You know that to be true. He's saying all of these things that they already know and he's reminding them. Well, when we come here, there's a shift. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. So he's saying, maybe this is something that you don't know. And so here's some knowledge that you need to have regarding what's going to happen to your brothers and sisters who have died. And we see first, we see in there, uh, one of the things that he wants them to know is that death uh, is sleep, right? He says, uh, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who were asleep. Now, this term "to be asleep" it's a euphemism that's used a number of times throughout the Scriptures to speak of death, and it speaks specifically of the death of believers. And so, even in that term, to say that death is sleep, it's a metaphor, right? But even within that metaphor, we can see the hope of a future resurrection because they're only asleep. One day, they will be awakened. So even in that, we see that death is really just a sleep. It's not that they're going to be gone forever, that you're not going to get to see them again. You will see them again. Not only is death asleep, uh, he says, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. And so he doesn't say don't grieve, right? He doesn't say don't grieve at all because it's appropriate. When we think of friends and family who have passed away, it is appropriate for us to think and be sorrowful for them, right? To be sad uh, for the loss. But what it's saying here is this word that it says to grieve, it's really talking about a continual grief. It's a perpetual, never-ending, really, an unceasing grief. And that's what he's saying is we don't grieve like that, even though maybe we will grieve, but it's not going to be forever, <clears throat> so you see, we have a knowledge that's different from unbelievers because death is, is asleep and grief is not a continual thing, right? And then another thing, unbelievers see death without hope, right? He says, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, this lack of hope that it's talking about, it's not necessarily talking about a lack of hope in, in an afterlife, right? Because we know uh, there were Greek philosophers around the same time that had various beliefs, various philosophical beliefs, and they did believe in some form of an afterlife, right? But it's, it's not the same thing. Really what Paul is saying here is, is that lack of hope is not a hope in that. It's that they don't have hope in Christ. That is where hope really is. And we see that as we get a little bit further on in verse 14. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like what Paul told the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, he says that they were without God and without hope in this world, so that's what he's saying: is without God, to be without God is to be without hope, and that's what he's saying here. Just to give you give you an idea, uh, there was a letter, uh, a copy of a letter that I found uh, from the second century. It was a friend who was writing a letter to a, a you know writing a letter to their friend who had just lost a loved one, and the person's name was Irene, and she says uh, in her letter she said Irene to Teanophorus and Philo, good comfort. I am as sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. And all things whatsoever were fitting, I have done. And all mine, Epaphroditus, Thermuthian, and Philian, and Apollonius and Plantus. But nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. <laughs> so you see in this, they have a, <laughs> it, Irene, she clearly did have a, a concern for her friend, right? She was grieving. She says, I'm grieving for your loss in the same way that I grieved for my friend Didymus whenever I lost him. But then she says, yeah, what can you do, right? There's nothing you can do about it. That's, that's life, you know? You're just, gonna, you're just gonna die. Go ahead and comfort one another with that. <laughs> Where is the comfort in that? There is no comfort in that, right? There's no hope in that. So what Paul is saying here is we don't grieve like those who have no hope. He's saying we don't grieve like that. You know, we don't say, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. That's life. You know, people die. That's just it. No, he says you have hope in Christ. That is where your hope is. There is a future complete and total victory that can be found in Christ. Uh, one of the commentators uh, that I read wrote it, said it this way. It makes all the difference in the world if people know that their destiny is marked by the words and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any pain. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Uh, The first things have passed away. The Thessalonians can grieve differently because they can know that for them, there are no permanent broken hearts, right? And so we can grieve. It is appropriate for us to grieve, but there's not a permanent Grief. And that's what he's saying is we have hope, right? We have hope in Christ. And so in this passage, we see that we are contrasted. This resurrection, this idea of the resurrection contrasts us with unbelievers, and it also compares us to Christ, right? He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we see that Christ rose from the dead and this idea this concept the Thessalonians would have had of Jesus dying and rising from the dead it's not you know some philosophical speculation that they had right it wasn't some some mythological belief that they had right some elaborate religious myth right it was it was grounded in historical fact they knew this to be true and that's what that's what he's saying here is that that is that's the hope right is we believe that Jesus died And rose from the dead. I want to say I I really appreciate the way that the ESV translates this, where it says, for since we believe uh, that Jesus died and rose again, because a lot of translations actually say, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that is appropriate. That would be an appropriate way to, to interpret this, to say, if Jesus died and rose from the dead, then this. Right? So it's a conditional statement. It's if this is true, then this is also true. But what this is in this passage, it's, uh, this conditional statement is what's known as a, a first-class conditional. And really, essentially, all that means to be a first-class conditional statement is the first part of that, that if statement. It's a guaranteed thing to be true. Like, we know it's true. And so that's why it would be appropriate to translate it as since or because so just to give you an idea, give you an example of this. Uh, let's say my wife and I go out on a date, right? And so we have someone who volunteers to watch all of our kids for us. So which for that, first of all, I would say, Lord bless you, right? <laughs> so and anyways, so let's say let's say that happens. Hypothetically speaking, we go out on a date, okay? And I tell or. Either Katie or I tell the people who are watching their kids for us, if we were to say, hey, if my kids ask for a snack, let them know they can have this. Like we have a basket, you know, with some snacks. They can pick something from that basket, right? Well, when I say, if my kids ask for a snack, what's going to, they're going to ask for a snack. There's no question about it. It's going to happen. Because kids love snacks, right? I actually see for the first time, my kids looking up at me right now because they've heard me say the word snack like three or four times, (laughs) right? So we know if they ask for a snack, really what I'm saying is when they ask for a snack, this is what can happen, right? In the same way, that's what Paul is saying here is since Jesus died and rose from the dead, you know this to be a fact, it is true. You know it in your hearts, you believe it. And because of that, you can believe the second part of that statement, right? And so that is the hope. That is the hope that Paul is giving to them. Is it's not in anything else that he can give. It's in what Jesus has already done, right? It's that Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the gospel. That's our hope. Our hope is in the gospel. <clears throat> so if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the fullness of Christian hope follows. The continuing life of his people depends on and is indeed an extension of his own risen life. So that's the idea. That's our hope that we have. So Christ has risen from the dead. And because Christ has risen from the dead, we can go on to that second part, right? It says, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So since we believe that Christ rose from the dead, we can also believe that our friends who have died will also be risen from the dead. That's what Paul is saying here is we have hope that they will be resurrected. You see, it says in here, it says, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That phrase through Jesus, it really could be put at the end of the verse where it says those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. And so that's really, that's the way it's originally worded. And so the idea is even in our death, our death is through Jesus. And so just as Jesus died and rose from the dead, we are dead in Jesus or through Jesus, and we will also be risen through Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Because uh, believers uh, have, because we have the hope in Jesus, we can believe in that. And not only that, that, that our friends will be resurrected but that they will return with him, right? It says that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so it's it's that idea is is that we believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Paul said in in Corinthians, right? So those who have fallen asleep, they are with Jesus now. And the idea is when Jesus comes back, they're coming with him, right? They're going to be raised. They're going to have a new body Uh, And then they will be uh, with Jesus. So that's the first thing. The first way that we can find hope in this passage is through our resurrection in Christ. The second way I believe in which all believers can find hope is in our reunion with fellow believers. So you get to verse 15. This is really kind of the nitty-gritty. This is really the event that is going to take place that's going to show what is the hope that we have, this future hope, right? It says, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So we see that this declaration comes from the Lord himself. This isn't Paul's words. He's saying, I got this from the Lord. And because it came from the Lord, you can know this to be true. It's authoritative and you can trust in it. Okay. It says, I declare by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what does that mean? Essentially, all that's saying is is that those of us who are still alive when Jesus comes back, we're not first right that's the that's the idea that Paul is getting at here is that the first thing that's going to happen is the Lord will come first right it says uh it says that uh, we will not precede uh, those who have fallen asleep so really the point here that Paul is making is that the dead in Christ are going to be the ones who are raised first. And he'll get to that later on. Uh, so uh, in this grand event, in this event that's going to take place, when Jesus comes back, those who are dead in Christ are going to have a key role in that. And that's essentially what he's going going with here. So then you get into verse 16. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven uh, with a cry of command. And so this is the event, right? This is, this is, the grand event that we're all waiting for, this return of Jesus Christ, right? It says that the Lord himself is the one who's going to come, right? There's no substitute for it. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself is coming back. That's our hope is that Christ is coming back. And how is it that he's going to come? It says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven and three things are going to happen when he comes. There's going to be a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, so this cry of command—that's really—it's a—it's a—it's a shout, a proclamation, it's a cry uh, of—it's joining the ranks, right? It's essentially—it's kind of a military, almost like a military term, um, and so it's really—it uh, could be understood. Uh, this command is really could be understood to be the actual moment that Jesus commands the dead to be risen from the dead. So that's what he's saying. When he makes this command, it's essentially Jesus saying, rise. And then the dead in Christ are going to rise. And then there's going to be this voice of the archangel. So it doesn't say specifically which archangel that is. It just says an archangel. So it's it's really an archangel is essentially the leader of angels. And so that's, it, it would be kind of, you know, if you're look, looking at military terms, you got the general it would be like the lieutenant or whoever. I don't I don't really know all of military rank. So uh, anyways, it would be the, you know, another person under his command would be putting his word out there too, right? And that's essentially the idea is, is Jesus is proclaiming for them to rise. The archangel is getting in, in the mix too. He gets his voice in there. And then you have this sound of the trumpet of God, right? And so the trumpets uh, typically they signified a majestic entrance. So there's this majestic event that's taking place announcement of the king, you know, coming back um, is really what it is. And so, and so again, the idea is not, it's not the trumpet sound that is going to bring the dead back, right? It's the cry of command. It's the command that comes from Jesus Christ because he's the one that has the power to raise them from the dead. And so, after that, we see then this reunion is going to be followed by the resurrection of the dead, right? After Jesus comes, he makes the command. Then it says, the Lord, uh, after the Lord himself descends, it says at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so the idea is it's, it's really just one of chronology, right? Um, so he's saying those who have gone before will be raised, and not only that, they will be first. They will be the first ones to be risen before you who are still alive, you who I'm talking to right now, you're, you're going to come next, right? You're, it's, it's showing that the, those who, have, who are dead, who have gone before, have a primary role in this, right? And so that's bringing them hope. You know, they're looking at it like my friends who have gone, who have died, they're looking at it almost with this sense of hopelessness. But that's what Jesus is saying is they don't have to have that hopelessness because they're going to be the first ones to arrive at the table, right? They're going to be, you know, the, the ones that we're going to celebrate first. <clears throat> and then after they are risen, it's followed up by in verse 17, uh, this reunion, the reunion between those who are still alive with their loved ones, right? It says that, uh, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so those who are alive will be reunited with their loved ones. And so the idea here is, is the resurrected ones, they are the primary group, as I've already mentioned, right? It's the living that are joined afterwards it's, it, the, I, the sense is that that was a smaller group of people. It's going to be a much smaller group of people who are still alive, who are going to be coming back as opposed to those who have already gone before. That's, that's the idea that Paul is having here. And so that would have been different. Uh, like I said, it would have been different from what the Thessalonians maybe would have believed, right? Because they believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And so uh, the idea that there are going to be so many more people who are resurrected— uh, it would have been a different thought, a different idea to them, right? Um, and then it says that they will be uh, caught up together with them in the clouds. This term, to be caught up together, it's where we get uh, the theological term of the rapture. Uh, if you're familiar with that term, the, the word to be caught up, it's this word, uh, to to be raptured, essentially. And it's the idea is it's a sudden... And it's a sudden enforceable seizure, an irresistible act of catching away due to a divine activity. And so it could be translated as to snatch up or even to carry off by force. So just as a, I mean, as a small illustration, it would be like, you know, if I have have a 10 month old daughter, if she's down on the ground and I go and pick her up, there's nothing that she can do to stop that, right? There's nothing that she can, she can't prevent me from picking her up, right? And that's the idea is that, we're going to be caught up in a forcible way, really. We, we have no choice in the matter. This is going to be the end. And I mean, not that we would want to resist anyways, right? But it's the, that's the idea is that there is no resistance here. Like we are going to be caught up in the clouds and we're going to meet Jesus, right? It says that we will be uh, uh, united with Christ to meet the Lord in the air. Just, I mean, I'm just, I just have a hard time picturing this. I don't know. I, it's just, just imagining for a moment, Jesus coming down and us coming up and meeting in the clouds. It's just, it's, it's an incredible picture, right? And this is the moment, this is the moment that our faith has made sight, right? It's the, it will be the time when we meet Jesus face to face, And we can rejoice uh, in in that meeting, right? And it says, not only were you going to meet the Lord in the air, it says, and so we will always be with the Lord. So in this moment, we meet Jesus, we're going to see him in the clouds, we're going to be reunited with our friends, and it's never going to end, right? That's the hope. That's the hope the Thessalonians had. That's the hope that we have today, right? Just a uh, to give you an idea here, just the, the details of when all of that takes place are not, the, not what's important here to Paul, right? And so we want to spend, you know, too often, we want to look at these passages or we want to go into Revelation and we want to talk about the chronology of all of these events, right? What's going to be, you know, we're going to, the rapture is going to take place and then there's going to be this period of tribulation. And after that period of tribulation, Jesus is going to come back and, and set up a kingdom. Uh, If you believe that, right? If you believe in a premillennial view, that's not the point, right? Paul is not saying, he's not advocating for premillennialism or amillennialism or pre-tribulation, rapture, post-tribulation, all of that stuff. That's not the idea here. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is Jesus is coming back, right? That's it. (laughs) Jesus is coming back and we are going to see him and our friends and our family who have gone before us, we will see them again too. That's the hope. That's the idea that he has here. It's, none of those other details really matter in this moment. What he's saying is this is what matters, is we are going to be reunited with our friends, and we will be united officially with Christ in that moment. And so we have hope, right? We have hope in our resurrection, in Christ we have hope in this reunion that we will have with fellow believers and then the third way in which all believers can find hope is in our reassurance to one another. That's the last thing, right? So it says in verse 18, "Therefore encourage one another with these words." These words are a little bit more encouraging, I think, than Irene's were to her friends, right? These <laughs> this is hopeful. This is hopeful that that we have. You know, all of these things, because of this, therefore, encourage one another. And so this idea of encouraging, it's, it's uh, the idea is to console one another or to comfort one another, right? And so uh, we see that throughout Scripture multiple times. Uh, one primary example would be Second Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Paul is talking, again, uh, in that case, to the Corinthians, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a whole lot of comfort, right? And so it says, we will be comforted even in our sufferings. And it says, Paul is saying, I am suffering. And the reason I am suffering is so that you can be encouraged and you can be comforted so that whenever you are in trouble, whenever you are being persecuted, whenever you are suffering you can be comforted by those who have gone through it before. And then you can take that and then comfort another person with it, right? That's the idea. And that's what Paul has in mind here in First Thessalonians is now you know this truth. Because you know that truth, you can comfort and you can encourage one another. And so Paul uh, uses this information to impel them to be active in seeking one another. When it is his will to bring in the end of this age, those who have died in him and those who will survive will be united in his presence. The thought gives meaning to existence and suggests the certainty of ultimate triumph, right? That's the hope that Paul is giving is we have hope in Christ, in the gospel. And because of that, we can encourage and comfort one another. Where does this reassurance come from, right? We encourage one another, but how do we encourage them? It says, we encourage one another with these words, right? Pastor Seth talks about that every week, that we have the word, and it's the word that works, right? The word is what works. That's what will bring us into sanctification. It's what will help us to grow is God's word. It is powerful, right? Right? And that's what Paul is is urging and encouraging uh, the Thessalonians with this, with this hope. Because you know this, you can have hope. I just want to take just a brief moment and just look at a couple of other passages just to show you that it's not even just in this passage that we looked at today, but it's all throughout the entire letter of Thessalonians that we have this hope, right? We talked about it briefly earlier, how they had faith, and Paul was commending them for that faith, right? And it says that, uh, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, even from the beginning of his letter, he's saying, You have a future hope in Jesus, who has died and rose from the dead. He's in heaven now, and he's going to come back, and he will deliver us from wrath. There is a future wrath that is coming. And what this is saying is you Thessalonians, you believers, you have hope to be, to escape from that wrath, essentially, right? Which is different than in chapter two, he talks about, again, he's commending them for their faith. And he says, you are being persecuted for your faith. And even in that persecution, uh, you are being killed. Uh, and it says, you suffered the same things as your from your countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And so he compares them again to Christ, saying that you're suffering the same way that Christ suffered. But I want you to know, he says, wrath has come upon them at last. And so those who have no hope in Christ, those who were persecuting the Thessalonians, they're going to face wrath, right? The Thessalonians will escape the wrath, but they're going to have to endure that wrath. Look at just a couple more, a couple more, just brief passages. Right after that, Paul is talking to them, and he's talking about how he wants to go see them again. He's, he's, uh, he's been striving to see them since he's been pulled away from them, right? He, he had to leave uh, the city of Thessalonica pretty quickly uh, when he was there. And it says that, uh, I wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered us. And then chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So again, he's encouraging them, saying that where is our hope? Where is our joy? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not you? That's a rhetorical question. He's saying it is you. You are our hope. Like you are a part of that hope that is coming when Jesus comes back. You Thessalonians, you believers, have that same hope. And then chapter 3 He continues, and he's talking about establishing them in their faith, right? He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So again, he's talking about this this event, right? Chapter 4, the passage we looked at today, that's the primary focus that paul has in this letter and he's using really the rest of the letter to kind of lead up to that event right he's saying you have hope to be blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ he keeps saying it time and again jesus is coming back and now here's the event he is coming back this is the hope that you have and then he concludes the letter in chapter five says may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely may your whole spirit and body and soul Uh, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So he starts the letter with this hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ends the letter with this hope that we have in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all throughout the entirety of the letter, he's talking about this hope. We have hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those who have died, who have gone before us, they have that hope that they will be resurrected. Why? Because Jesus was resurrected. And it's coming back again. So a couple of things uh, that we can just see from this passage, just, just in conclusion. For those of you today who have put your faith in Christ, the question is, what are you doing with that faith? What are you doing with the knowledge that you have that's different from that of the unbelievers? Are you striving to know him more? So when you read God's word, you find hope, right? There is hope in that. But the question is, are you consistently reading his word? Because you're not going to find hope in anything else other than in Christ. And we can find that hope in his word. It's the word that works, right? And when you read his word, there's encouragement. And the, the question is, what are we doing with that encouragement? Are we then taking it and encouraging one another with it, right? That's what Paul says here is, you know this. Now encourage one another with it. So are we encouraging one another with the words that we have received from Christ? And are we telling others about him, right? I mean, are we telling our friends and neighbors who maybe don't know Christ? Are we going and telling them? We have hope. We should be providing that hope or offering the the truth of that hope to them, right? Right? Now, there may be some of you today who maybe you don't have that faith in Christ. The question is again, what are you going to do with, with this today? You see, we find in Scripture that without him, there is no hope in death, right Without him, without Christ, none of this stuff matters. None of what Paul told the Thessalonians matters because it 's all grounded in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death without Christ is eternal suffering. Scriptures make that very clear. It makes it clear that hell is a real place, right? Paul told the Thessalonians, right, that they would escape that wrath to come, but that there are going to be those who won't escape that wrath. And without him, There is no hope in this life. Not only is there no hope in death, there's no hope in life, right? Life without Christ is a life without peace. It's a life without joy. But it doesn't have to be that way. Paul told the Thessalonians, right, that their hope was in the gospel, right? Jesus died. Jesus died for sinners. He took the penalty for our sins. He took that penalty, that punishment that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve. Jesus took that upon himself, and he endured that, and he died for that sin. And not only that, what does the Bible say? It says that he rose from the dead. He showed that he had power over the grave. He conquered death. Death has no victory in Jesus, right? So we can know and we can believe if we believe that, if we trust in that, know that Jesus died and rose from the dead and we trust in that and believe it and trust in him. Recognize that we are a sinner deserving of that wrath, but by God's grace, he can bring us into just like the Thessalonians to be able to be delivered from that wrath. We don't have to go through life the way that Sarta did, right? And as he wrote in his play and many other of his writings, uh, he talked about this, this life without hope, with no hope for the future. But the reality is there is hope, right? There is hope in Christ. He is coming back, and we will be reunited with those who have gone before us. And we have that reassurance from God's word. So the question that we have to answer today is, Are we ready for that? Let's pray.